We love stories about uh, great victories, especially those that come about when defeat seems to be a foregone conclusion. The University of Arkansas at Little Rock Trojan basketball team played the Purdue Boilermakers in the NCAA men's tournament first round on March 17th. And I had forgotten that the game was on. I think it started about 3 o'clock. So when I got home about 5 or so from work here and was helping Renee with supper, I turned the game on, and there was 3 minutes and 9 seconds left in the game. And the Trojans were down by 13 points, and I just about turned the game off. But I kept it on kind of helped out in the kitchen, would go back in, watch the game, and to my great surprise, the UALR basketball team mounted this incredible comeback. And as the, the regular time was running out, the, one of the players from UALR made this incredible three-point basket, tied the game, and eventually the Trojans won in double overtime, I think the score was 85 to 83. What a victory, as the saying goes, snatched from the jaws of defeat. Well, the greatest victory that has ever been told, in fact, the greatest victory in human history, is the Easter story, isn't it? And as we reflect upon Christ's victory, it did appear that Satan's victory was all but a foregone conclusion. But today we're celebrating the fact that Satan did not win, Jesus did. But as Jesus hung there on that cross, it looked like defeat. But what a victory. And what's interesting about Jesus' victory it really doesn't match the type of victory that UALR enjoyed, a victory where there was a last-minute comeback and everything turned around. Jesus' victory is not one snatched from the jaws of defeat as we commonly understand it. It was a victory that was part of the unfolding purposes of God to redeem His elect people. And our theme today is victory, but we, we need to see it in terms of Jesus' victory is our victory. His humiliation was part of that plan, his suffering, his death, his burial, but also Jesus' exaltation was the other part of that plan, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, and his role as judge. And today we acknowledge the humiliation of Christ as part of this great Easter story, but our focus today is on the exaltation of Christ, his victory that is also our victory by His grace. And so we'll be looking uh, today not 
in depth at these various aspects of, of Jesus's exaltation, it would take way too much time for us to explore all the wonderful theology that's even in the resurrection. But what I want to do today is to just with a broad brushstroke look at all that's involved with Jesus's exaltation or his victory so that we can see that his exaltation really matters to us in our daily lives in the here and now. It's not just something for the future. So we begin today with the resurrection. J.C. read the resurrection account from Matthew in chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. There the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb to finish the preparation of Jesus's body. You may remember that the first day of the week that Matthew talks about is actually the third day since Jesus went to the cross on that Good Friday and then died and was buried in a hurried fashion because the Sabbath was, was soon starting. And the idea was that after the Sabbath, they would go and finish the preparation of Jesus' body. So the first day was death burial. The second day was Sabbath day, a day of rest. The third day was the first day of the week, the resurrection Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. And just to read two verses that J.C. read earlier from the gospel. But the angel said to the women after they had arrived at the empty tomb, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. So on this first day of the week, this first Easter Sunday morning, the glorious news was heralded. He is risen. And that has echoed since that first Easter Sunday down through human history until our day today. He is risen and it will echo. He is risen through the rest of human history and will finally come to an end when this is declared. He has returned. And we have the privilege today to live in the reality of the victory that is declared in these precious words he has risen so does the bodily resurrection of Christ really make a difference to you and me in our daily lives some may be thinking that's a silly question of course it does and yes of course it does and I want to suggest a few ways that it does in particular I want to suggest one way (laughs) that the resurrection really makes a difference in our daily lives it matters because it's central to salvation and to show this I want to reflect upon not he is risen but what if he is not risen he is not risen that means there's no ascension No ascension means there's no enthronement. Jesus is not reigning as king at the right hand of the Father. That means there's no second coming. That means there's no final judgment. He has not risen means that the Holy Spirit was never sent. And even if there was some work to apply, the Holy Spirit wouldn't be here to apply it. There, there would be uh, no 
forgiveness of sins, there, there, there would be no salvation. And we must appreciate the centrality of the resurrection to our very existence today as God's people. It is absolutely foundational to our salvation. And Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 when he's, he is teaching on the necessity of both the death and resurrection of Jesus to the Christian's life and future. And I'll just read one verse, verse 5 of Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And Paul goes on to teach our union with Christ in his death means that Christ has fully pardoned the guilt of our sin and has freed us from living in bondage to sin. In other words, we're dead to sin's bondage. And then Paul goes on to teach that our union with Christ in his resurrection means that we've been raised from a dead spiritual life to a new spiritual life. Indeed, he speaks about the fact that today we actually have eternal life. That describes the quality of the life that we enjoy in union with Christ. And Paul shows this in another epistle that he wrote to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verse 20 when he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, but I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. The death of Christ and the resurrection of the Christ coming together to afford for us a new lease on living life today in union with Christ. So, does the resurrection make a difference in our lives today? It's foundational. And in fact, it makes such a difference that Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he is refuting this false notion by some who claim to be Christians and yet denied that Christ bodily rose from the dead when, when the apostle said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. To say I'm a Christian and deny the bodily resurrection of Christ is utter folly. But we're not fools by believing in the resurrection. It's true. He is risen. And we live in that victory. And listen to the victory as Paul describes it. Later in 1 Corinthians 15... Verses 56 through 58. This passage of Scripture really speaks to us today. Listen to it. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a real difference in your life and in my life today. It makes all the difference. Today we possess eternal life. Today we live in the power of this new resurrected life. As Paul says, even, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And today we live with the assurance that one day we will experience a bodily resurrection and physically enjoy the new heavens and the new earth as the resurrected and perfected church of Jesus Christ. His victory for us means we can live through the challenges that, that we face in our, our day and not just live through them, but have hope and joy uh, today. Why, Paul says, therefore, your labor and your life in the Lord, in the resurrected Lord, is not in vain. Can you think of anything more encouraging, more hopeful, more precious than for us to live a life where everything, every circumstance that we go through, everything that happens to us, every experience that we have has a purpose. And the purpose is much greater than us. It's not in vain what you're dealing with today. It's not in vain what I'm dealing with today because of the resurrection and the victory of the resurrection that we enjoy today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Presbyterians, (laughs) for saying hallelujah. It is something to shout about, isn't it? Don't get too carried away. We also, I mean, we, we do, we, so we live in the victory of the resurrection, we also live in the victory of the ascension. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. We read about this in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let me read that, those few verses. And while they were gazing into heaven as, as he went, that is, as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what importance does the ascension have for you and me today? What what does it really matter about our life today that Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, the first thing I would say is that it validates, it proves his mission was accomplished. He came for one purpose, and that was to make full atonement for God's elect, that they would be redeemed. And Jesus ascending into heaven is putting a big stamp, mission accomplished. He has done all that is necessary for you and me to be in heaven. And secondly, Jesus ascended, and in so doing, he, he had told his disciples in John 14 that he was, a, he was going to prepare a place for them. John 14 One through three, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I mean, this is part of the great hope that we have. I have a home, you have a home, this country is our home, this world is our home, it's not our true home. We need to appreciate it, we need to be good citizens, we need to enjoy what God has given us here, but it's not our true home. Jesus ascended to prepare a place for us, to prepare an eternal home for us, where we will live together as the church before God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, sin destroyed in perfect harmony. What a place. <laughs> and Jesus is, the, is there preparing that place. And you, and you and me are able to live today in light of that reality. Is that not a blessing? And thirdly, John 16 tells us that Jesus left to send the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 of John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then fourthly, Jesus ascended and entered the heavenly holy of holies. Where he continues to minister as our great high priest. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Beautiful. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing, did you hear that? Securing an eternal redemption and I'll add for you and me and John picks up on this this continuing ministry of our great high priest in heaven in first John and chapter 2 and verse 1 my little children John writes I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous. That advocate, that great high priest is there in heaven interceding on our behalf before the Father, and he is pleading his atonement for us. Think about that. That's why when we confessed our sins earlier, to be reminded of who Jesus is and his redemption and the greatness of God is so vital because Jesus is there as our great high priest. It's easy for us to become discouraged because of our failures, to be overcome with guilt, to lack assurance, but the ascension is of great benefit for, to you and, and to me because it declares victory over guilt because there's the mercy we have is from Jesus who is there in heaven still ministering to us 
with mercy as our great high priest. And we're able to say because of the ascension, because Jesus is there as our advocate pleading his atonement for us, we are able to call Satan's accusations what they are, lies. No one can bring any charge against God's elect. Why? Because we have a great high priest who is before the Father. Now listen, dear brothers and sisters, tell me this doesn't make a difference in our lives today. When we cry out to God in prayer knowing Jesus says, as Hebrews 4 tells us, I am well aware with your weaknesses. I've been tempted just as you have been. Actually more. Though Jesus never sinned, he tells us, come to me. I have the mercy that you desperately need. Don't feel shameful coming to me with all of your sin. I'm the first one you should turn to. For I have plenteous mercy and grace to forgive. Tell me this doesn't make a difference in our lives today. We have a great high priest. We have a good-hearted king who is there in heaven. And speaking of that good-hearted king... Not only is there victory in the resurrection and victory in the ascension, but there's victory in the enthronement of Christ. In his human nature, he's enthroned as, as King of kings and Lord of lords, as we recited in the Apostles' Creed, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's so encouraging to know that our Savior is our King. And we find something about the destiny of this king's people, you and me, as his church. Listen to this from, from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning as king. This is our destiny. But God, rich in mercy, we read this as our um, assurance of pardon. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us when even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace who have been saved through faith and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And further, Paul says in 2 Timothy that we will reign with Christ. In verses 11 through 13, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So today we're able to rest under the enthronement of Christ, the reign of Christ, our good-hearted king who is also our great high priest, who is also our savior, who is also the head of the church. He is ruling, he is interceding, he is defending his church, his people this very day. And this should be of great comfort to you and to me. It should make a huge difference in how we live with confidence. 
because our king is reigning and ruling today. He is victorious. He is enthroned now and forevermore. And the very assurance that he gave Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 is the very assurance that we have today because of his victory reigning as king. Listen to this. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here's what I want to keep remembering, and here's where I want to to dwell, that the church of Jesus Christ is the only institution on earth that will last for eternity. And the reason is very simple, very clear. The church was purchased by an inestimable price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And secondly, the church has as her head Jesus Christ, the one who reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now just think about it for a minute. We're a part of different organizations. We're, we have jobs that we're, we're a part of companies. And we're a part of all kinds of things that simply, hate to tell you this, that will not last. <laughs> but we're a part of the church by grace that is forever and ever. And brothers and sisters, we need to really get excited about the victory. We're a part of something that is so much bigger than anything else that has ever existed or ever will exist on earth or in the universe. The church of Jesus Christ. And may I just simply use a common phrase. We need to get fired up about it. (laughs) It's victory. So we live in victory. Risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the enthroned Christ, and the judge. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read this about Christ's authority to judge. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, what is done in the body, rather good or evil. So, So what difference does this make? This part of the exaltation of Christ that he's coming back to judge. What, what, what difference does that make in your life today? I'll tell you either two things. It'll scare you half to death or you'll be really confident. One of those two. Notice, all will stand. All will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul picks up on what he wrote in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. After that great description of Christ's humiliation and exaltation... He says in verse 11 that, that in that final day, the consummation of human history, every knee will bow before Jesus as Lord. Think about that. I take that to mean that even those who rebelled against Christ will bow the knee and say, Lord. Now the bad news is this. For those who lived a life of rebellion against Christ and who never 
asked forgiveness for their sins and trusted in Christ for forgiveness and eternal life as they were living on this earth, the bad news is they will stand before the judge on their own record and it will condemn them and they will suffer judgment and the wrath of God. And if you're here today with with compassion, I would commend to you that you think about your relationship with God. And if that describes you, consider talking to me or talking to someone that you know trust in Jesus. Because this is the day of salvation. But the good news is this. For those who do put their trust in Jesus Christ and by God's grace are united to Christ We will stand before our judge, and our judge is also our Savior. And we will stand perfectly justified, perfectly in right standing with God before our judge, because uh, because we stand solely upon the merits of our Savior, who is also our judge. I mean, isn't this great? The Michael Card song, when I look upon the judge, I'll see my Savior there. That's true. That's great theology. That's hope. That's victory in light of Jesus coming as the judge. We do not fear because our judge is our Savior who has already taken the judgment due to our sin. He has already suffered the penalty due to to our guilt. He has suffered God's wrath for us so that there's no more wrath left for us. He has satisfied God's judgment and we will stand and live life eternal. Well, I hope you're like me that you really love stories about great victories. And we've just been talking about the greatest victory in all of human history, the Easter story, the victory of Jesus when all looked like loss, the victory in the resurrection, the victory in the ascension, the victory in his enthronement, the victory As he comes as judge, his victory, listen, his victory is our victory. And it's a reality in which we live this very day. The victory of Jesus really isn't a victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. It's a victory according to the eternal plan of God to redeem his elect people and to live with them forever. Well, what kind of a victor are we? Paul said that we are more than conquerors. And I thought, what in the world? What does it mean? That we're more than conqueror. I mean, a conqueror is a conqueror, right? 
a victory is a victory. It may be by two points, but it's still a victory, right? So what does it mean when Paul says in Romans 8 that we're more than conquerors? I've thought about this. And the only thing I could come up with is that there is no category that is great enough, that is exalted enough to describe the quality of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. So Paul uses this phrase, more than conquerors. And I would like to suggest that we're super victors in Jesus. And listen to what he says. Knowing all things, we are more than conquerors, super victors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's victory. That's super victory for God's people. And may we live, dear brothers and sisters, may we live as we are victors. More than victors in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb, the ascension, the enthronement. And we thank you for that day when, O oh Lord Jesus, you will come as judge and we will see our Savior there. Enable us to live in the reality of being more than a conqueror, a super victor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.